high price point of pigments sells for a couple hundred dollars a kilo. You can make more than a living wage and a profit. It's basically cost of a, a cost of salt water and the cost of salt water is really cheap, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then the CapEx expense compared to like a fermentation plant, I did a comparison where it'd be like at least $5 million to set up a fermentation plant that could produce maybe a metric ton a month um, for an algae farm. Uh, you can set up the same kind of thing for like $50,000 or less. Welcome everybody to Learn Full. Today we're joined with Elliot Roth, founder of Spira. He was on the show in 2019. He has come back against maybe his better judgment to come update us <laughs> on this world. <laughs> he is the focus on changing the world with algae. He, he's focused on uh, plastics, pigments, proteins. Elliot, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lil. It's <laughs> so good to be here. Uh, despite my better judgment, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, it's always good seeing you and catching up. And yeah, I've been working on algae for the better part of seven years, I guess. And then in particular, I have a background in synthetic biology, biomedical engineering. I've started seven companies, two nonprofits and a partridge in a pear tree. Mm -hmm. um, I like working on businesses that put together people that are more than some of their parts. A quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today. And uh, specifically focus on people's basic needs. So like food, water, shelter has this like Maslow's hierarchy approach to things. And then in particular, uh, in my spare time, I play music. I live in San Francisco now, which is a recent change. And uh, yeah, and I'm always down for collaborating on weird, eclectic business ideas. Yes. And uh, he means everything he just said, which is nice. I know sometimes people come on, people go about their lives. I can't tell you how many people come on the show and they say these types of things. And off camera, they're jerks. <laughs> Elliot's not a jerk. I would tell him to his face. I would just not comment on this in general if he was. <laughs> he's actually quite a nice guy. So uh, oh, reach out to him. Man. If you're in the Bay Area, just you know, reach out. And if he's mean, report it back to me and I'll, I'll update this. But, but <laughs> so, so, just disclaimer with an asterisk in like show notes. Yes. Uh, well, I guess just edit a little thing like this is not true. He, he actually like, punches kittens or something. Uh, so it has been about five years since he's been on the show most companies last only five years what do you think has allowed your company to exist at all uh just uh, uh a healthy disrespect of authority i mm. don't know <laughs> like um i think the grit and perseverance and, and kind of stick with itness um i've gone through a couple of different pivots during the course of my business we got started in like 2016 actually and during that time, I've gone through nine different sets of co-founders. I've worked through all kinds of different challenges. Um, we started out just selling algae products. And then when I realized no one was going to buy this weird green shake from a guy at a farmer's market, we shifted into algae bioreactors. And then when I realized no one wanted a single-use home appliance system, we shifted into um, algae ingredients. And now in particular, we're working on biomanufacturing. And so... Um, I think that over time, what, what ends up happening is that you learn and you learn faster. And so I highly recommend that anybody who wants to learn very, very quickly to start a business, because it is definitely a pressure cooker in the fastest way that you could possibly learn. Um, and so I think just, just like learning over time, man. Um, yeah. And realizing that the only thing that causes a business to fail is you either run out of money or you give up. So I just haven't given up yet and I uh, haven't run out of money yet. So all of those are good things. Yeah. Were there uh, any particular highs and lows over the last couple of years? I know there was COVID. So I assume, you know, something came out of nowhere, just like punched you during that time. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, COVID was a bit of a blessing in disguise. People started mm. embracing healthier ingredients in particular. 
And so we started selling um, pigments from algae back in like 2020. And that ended up kicking off this entire other business segment that I didn't even realize. It's uh, replacements for artificial thighs and colors, which are made from petrochemicals and coal tars, um, Mm -hmm. which is really nasty. That's what is in any candy product that you eat in the United States and all kinds of cosmetic products as well. And so that really took off. That part of our business started taking off. Um, And then the the kind of other aspect of that too, is that I got really antsy um, during COVID because I have all these skills in synthetic biology. And so I started a COVID diagnostic company to to partially just like help out. And so in the span of two weeks, we raised $100,000 to start doing robotic automated testing in a shipping container lab that I had built and put together during COVID. Um, And I wanted to go around and swab people with like a Q-tip, you know, and just get going on it. But um, turns out there's a lot of regulatory hurdles and other things like that. And I picked the wrong team to really put together uh, during that. So uh, yeah, that w- there was all kinds of difficulties there. And I have a half-finished blog post that I'm probably too scared to actually publish about. But eventually, we'll share that story in full. Um, but I mean, that was, that was kind of a deviation and a bit of a diversion for a good six months during COVID. And then I got selected to join a NASA experiment in an analog astronaut habitat on the side of a volcano in Hawaii. So I went with five strangers to live in a moon habitat in the middle of a volcanic fields, uh, about 9,000, 9,000 feet above sea level and ended up uh, having to wear a spacesuit anytime I went outside. And so for two weeks, I was there with these five strangers who became like family. And that was really cool during COVID as well. Um, yeah, I, I also ended up setting up some community houses in Los Angeles. We set up two community houses. We had about 40 people come through and live there in various capacities during COVID, which was really fun. Uh, we would go out sailing uh, every single week. It was pretty ideal. We lived right by the ocean. Um, and yeah, built that shipping container lab. So I was close by a lab. I was setting up a makerspace. Uh, we were associated with this incubator program at Altice, which is a marine economy incubator. Uh, so all potentially really good things during COVID. I think it also helped me do a lot of internal exploration and growth and start uh, learning a lot more about myself and kind of have a bit of a reckoning with who I am as a person. And what I notice of a lot of people coming out of the pandemic and yourself included, where you start realizing and learning a whole lot more about how you act and how you interact and things that you really want because you had a lot of that alone time to be able to reflect. And so I think people are a little bit more choosy in what they're doing and who they're talking to and how they associate with people and maybe a little bit like less at less um, ostentatious or outgoing before the pandemic. Yeah, there's a Stanford study where a kid was given a, a, a marshmallow and they said, hey, if you wait like 10 minutes, I'll give you another marshmallow. The kids who couldn't wait didn't do well in school. Uh, they like tracked them over a longitudinal time. The ones who could did really well in school. I think COVID demonstrated as a society who could hold off to get you know another marshmallow and who couldn't. And so I think some people held off and they were like, "Wow, I can reflect. I can do better. I can be like you know you, Elliot." And then there's some people who are like, "No, I'm going to go on a plane and I'm going to yell at a stewardess for no reason." There are more. There was a there like more assaults happened of stewardess post COVID than like oh all the years combined. It's been like nuts. Like more people have wow. been jailed, arrested, fined sixty thousand dollars plus. So I think in the the pressure cooker, you with pressure, some people can be made into diamonds. 
some yeah. people just get broken up coal and then get used yeah. into fuel for other things. I mean, I think there, there's a saying that after the plague came the Renaissance. And I think that we're moving into this epic of a Renaissance period of activity um, mm -hmm. for society in general. And there's a lot of really interesting research and work being done behind the scenes now because things are starting to open up and people are yeah. recognizing like what is important to double down and double down on what's important to focus on. Yeah. And I, I, I dig into the, you know, the, the COVID testing, but I had Joe Zayner on and uh, YouTube does not like them. <laughs> like that was great i actually i, I saw Joe yeah, Joe's great. a couple months back and i was yeah. i was giving a talk about uh like algae and manufacturing and this this algae diet that i've been attempting and um yeah it was really fun hanging out with everybody in austin and whatnot but yeah i i think anything that goes up about like uh strange methods of doing diagnostics or vaccines or anything like that it's just like yeah, I'm, I want to get the show big enough where I can uh, email, like actually talk to a human and say, you were idiots, like we did nothing wrong here. Because it was just sure. a machine, you know, tricking the thing. But oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. In, in terms of your business and the different things you're doing, is it like Alphabet, where there's a, a larger apparatus called Spira, and then you have all these buntings underneath it? Or how do you structure it up where you can do an offshoot of a, a testing or an offshoot of this or that? Are they all different? Or are they all within one umbrella? Yeah. Um. So Spira as a company has kind of what I what I categorize as three different avenues. So we have uh, the technologies that we work on, which is all related to uh, engineering services and developing organisms that are ready for biomanufacturing or service-based work. And then we have our products and we have our services. And so all of our services, think of those as all of the inputs that go into growing algae. So we've done work with an unnamed Arabian country. I never really found out which one they were, but we did a whole... Uh, estimation on a wastewater treatment and carbon capture plant using algae for them, which is kind of a fun like offshoot project. But yeah, algae can grow on wastewater and CO2 and uh, does really well at grabbing metals and minerals from its environment. So those are all the service-based businesses that uh, we can help out with and offer. And then on the flip side of things, all the products that we produce, I call them the four Ps. So we have pigments, proteins, plastics, and pharmaceuticals. Those are the four different avenues that we seem to band in. And in particular, we're just really dialing in on pigments as a product initially. Um, but I'm always open to collaborations, communication, and opportunities in leveraging this, this infrastructure and this network that we built. So we, we built a network of like 83 farms in 14 countries uh, that can produce about 566 metric tons of algae every single month. Um, and that's... Really exciting because I'm, I'm going to visit some of these farmers that I've only been talking to online during the pandemic um, and actually see their farms in person and be able to interact with them this coming fall. Hmm. The, you mentioned earlier that you're replacing petrochemicals. Is it mm -hmm. just, is it, is algae just the vehicle that gets the um, end result chemical that you want or is there a, an advantage to producing it I'm talking like evil utilitarian. I, I have like, it's the yeah, same cost yeah, for yeah. algae as it is petrochemical. Is one better as it goes through the process? Yeah. Or is yeah. it just so, the same thing? Yeah. Um, a lot of people think of oil as like old dinosaur juice, but that isn't entirely true, right? Um, a lot of oil is actually old algal blooms that were buried and compressed over time. And then that turns into oil. And so a lot of the same compounds that are produced by the petrochemical industry can be produced by algae. But I like to think of what we're doing as DNA to designer materials. 
So you're going from a, a certain genetic design into a digital to biological converter, more or less. So you go from your genetic code into an organism that can manufacture in large scale. And so in doing so, you're able to actively craft designer materials that use stuff like proteins as a means of making the world at, that are all biodegradable and have specific properties that you can specifically engineer into them, which is a lot better than these uh, long-lasting petrochemicals that get everywhere in the environment and hyperaccumulate, don't ever degrade and last forever and kind of have these toxic intermediaries and effects that that really harm people. Yeah. The... It sounds like uh, algae is kind of like the yeast for you guys. Like normally people do, you know, that type of engineering with with yeast, but you like algae. Why why, why focus on algae when there are other domesticated organisms that could maybe produce it at the same level? Yeah, yeah. So I think that we're running uh, over a cliff when it comes to synthetic biology and uh, leading into the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and so like you can take a look at, the different epics and the eras of how we make things on the basis of the materials that we have access to. So you got like the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the uh, Plastics Age, the Computer Age, all of these things are based around the specific materials and material science that we have access to. And so I think we're working into the biomaterials age, and that's going to be enabled by biomanufacturing. There's been a lot of talk about uh, fermentation, precision fermentation as a means of making the things that we end up using. There's a call by the Biden administration right now, an executive order to replace 30% of our chem chemical manufacturing by 2030 uh, using bio-based materials, which I think is, is a very like far-reaching goal, but also really beneficial because it kind of showcases this is the demand side of the equation. This is the interest in the people. Um, right now, fermentation is really well suited to small batch production and the scalability of producing via fermentation is not there. And there's a couple of different reasons for that that I found out by interviewing a ton of different companies in biomanufacturing, biomaterials, synthetic biology, and algae biofuels to figure out like what doesn't really work. And some of the key criteria are, um, I mean, fermentation happens in pressurized vessels because it produces CO2 as a waste product. You need a ton of sugar to go in there. And if we were to, um, if we, if we were to use sugar as an input for all the fermentation that we would need to replace petrochemicals, there's not enough land mass in the entire world. Like Iowa's already a third corn, you know? And I don't know how much more like corn we can really take. And then we're cutting down the Amazon rainforest to plant sugar cane, sugar cane plantations. So like, to me, that's kind of a name to think that that's all photosynthetic already. Why not just go to photosynthesis? Like do things from a first principles fundamental base level. And then at the same time to like dewater all of that, to like remove the water from whatever you're growing is somewhat of the first step. We ne would need a centrifuge that would have to spin a volume larger than the world's oceans. And so that's kind of insane. That would throw the world off its axis. We'd be flying through space. It's kind of ridiculous. And so when you, you actually pencil it out for some of the specific industries and applications, just doesn't really make sense. Fermentation is really well suited to pharmaceutical manufacturing like insulin but it's not well suited to commodity-based industries, stuff like meat, as an example, or um, I don't know, like whey, egg, things that people consume on a day-to-day -day basis. It's really challenging to produce that at large scales using fermentation processes. Yeah, that makes sense. The what kind of related to a question I asked uh, a minute ago, but I'm like clarifying a little bit. When um, sure. the when people use alt proteins for food for protein consumption, the, the body doesn't absorb it all as well as it can mm. with normal protein. And so mm -hmm. what, I'm, what I'm getting at there is 
with the stuff that you can derive outside of petrochemicals uh, to make protein, to make plastics, to make whatever, is it as good as what we can make with these other uh, options like the petrochemicals or better in, in some cases? Can you, you know, as good or better is really what we look for. But when it comes to protein, I know for most times the body just can't absorb it like it, it really normally can. So protein, from what I understand, is one of those areas that's probably going to take a hit. But I'm, I'm curious on like yeah, overall yeah. on the four Ps. Okay, so so I think like you're you're talking functionality standpoint, yes. right? And so um, in particular, when you're when you're talking about bio-based materials, there's a lot of things that they can do that petrochemicals, right? And one of those is being better suited to the body, being uh, well adapted, and and kind of having a higher bioavailability, um, being more environmentally friendly. Um, one of the, the key challenges in terms of functionality is, is really knowing what works. And some of these new AI and computational tools actually help us leverage and design proteins that we couldn't even conceive of before. And so that's the really exciting bit is that now mining that computational space in the database of all known uh, potential protein sequences. I mean, there's like 10 to the 60th potential combinations of molecules just in a particular like small data set, right? And so that's more... Uh, and there are, I think, like stars in the entire universe, which is ridiculous. Um, and so to narrow that solution set to be able to say, hey, we want to work on this specific problem is a really key thing. And so when we're focusing in on pigments in particular, what we're doing is we're creating pigments that have better functionality in terms of temperature stability, pH stability, uh, color fastness so that they can dye fabrics. Right now we're using all these petrochemical based dyes and coal tars to dye clothing and then we use, we use the same dyes to dye food products. We use the same dyes to dye cosmetic products. And so that to us was a really pertinent market because there's so much demand from a customer side of things. And then the current conventional bio-based dyes, they just break down and degrade. So we're doing protein engineering on a particular color uh, that's produced by cyanobacteria, by spirulina, uh, where we're stabilizing it in those high temperatures in acidic environments by... Um, kind of identifying a gene that already exists and then doing base pair swaps using CRISPR uh, as mm -hmm. a means of getting it so that it has that stability. And so that's really, that's really exciting too, because then you can have your cake, have your blue cake and eat it too, you know? So it's, it's can be used in anything from like denim all the way to Gatorade and anything in between. And I think that color is one of the things like we taste with our eyes before we taste with our mouth. And we also like really associate uh, what we enjoy with certain colors. And so you're wearing blue, I'm wearing blue. Uh, blue is the, the number one favorite color. We started with blue because it's really hard to find in nature as well. Mm -hmm. And then stabilizing this protein, it's a big protein complex. And so we had to develop a whole bunch of new genetic engineering techniques and editing techniques for an organism that's not a model organism too. So a lot of the uh, algae that I've worked with are non-model organisms. We've had to come up with all these new things from scratch. Uh, it's really exciting being at the very forefront, but it, it also has me reflect quite a bit on the industry and how we're stuck in particular organisms that aren't well adapted to scale. So part of the reason why we chose spirulina is that there's a built-in production network that I don't have to spend CapEx on. I don't have to do anything. So the minute that we get our engineered strain, I, I think Biology is like a living evolutionary algorithm, right? And so once you end up developing that one particular thing that works, it works every single time and it will replicate itself. And so every single time you go to engineer an organism, it's a moonshot. And that means once you have your moonshot, you've landed on the moon. You don't need to use the rockets again. 
And so that's that's kind of the thing with these biofoundries that have been developed is that it's it's somewhat of a waste of money unless they're constantly being used again and again and again. Like SpaceX developing the Falcon rocket as an example, unless it's constantly being used, like they spent all this money developing a rocket. If you use it to get somewhere or get something done, amazing, but it needs to be constantly used as a launch service. Really Starlink is what makes them money. And so that's, that's kind of the mentality here is that we need to better align uh, bio, biology and synthetic biology with biomanufacturing. Because if we're consistently making things that go out of the world, that's when these companies and these businesses make money. And then especially if you're designing from DNA all the way into the end material, you can make things that are better than we could have even conceived. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I'm a big fan of this push to biomanufacturing for several several features I think you've addressed uh, just in that explanation. But in addition, it is the decentralized nature of the the, bio the manufacturing yeah. of it. When it comes to manufacturing, there's huge, long supply chains. As we just got done talking with COVID, maybe not the best thing to have. That's why there's a lot of onshoring going on. Biomanufacturing is, you can be incredibly distributed with that and pull from a, a variety of things. Yeah, you can be really like, like protein sources. You can like reuse like uh, starches of many different things to make yeah. um, one alt protein that could be eaten by someone. Cause it's all just, it's all base materials. It's almost like a, right. uh, in Star Trek, the the little matter converter. The making, replicator? Like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like biomanufacturing is basically like that with a lot, you know, with a lot more right. steps, but like <laughs> it is more in that direction, which well, I really enjoy. That's the dream goal. So I, I tell people I want to be like Willy Wonka and George Washington Carver had a baby um, who focuses all about algae. Uh, and then in particular, that my main babe, my main creation would be a food replicator at the end of the day, or at least some kind of some version of a replicator. Because I, I think that's that's really the angle of what biology is moving to is like, if you can grow these base raw materials, and you can produce them virtually anywhere, then that creates an abundant society and an abundant mentality. And then we move beyond this need for localizing resources. And I think the majority of human conflict comes about because people have lack of resources. And if we can move past that, then we enable human flourishing and then we can self-actualize in the best kind of way. Yeah. The, so with underneath the four Ps in-house, do you have like this feedback loop of engineering the strains and then sending it back to the farmers to then grow out or do the farmers grow that out and that's a part of their partnership to meet your demands for the four p's yeah so so the way that we work is that and, and we're predominantly just focused on pigments right now just to be able to have mm -hmm. like this is this is our proof of concept our first to market and whatnot we're focused on this blue pigment in particular so that's our first engineered construct and we work with farmers as contract farmers and um, the way that I describe our business model, it's like Monsanto, Standard Oil, and BASF all got together and we're like, let's undo the damage of all of us. And so uh, Monsanto in the sense that we work with contract farms. And so we send our seed strains and cultures to all these contract farms in developing communities. We pay them more than a living wage. They end up farming for us uh, and then send us back our, our like raw material to be processed and refined, similar in nature to like an oil refinery. I think um, right now we're not using all parts of the organism. We're not using all parts of the buffalo, you know? And so if you're focused on producing only one product, that's great if your product's very expensive, like a drug. But if you're doing something like a, a more commodity level product or something that's not as uh, potentially cost competitive, you want to maximize the total value out. So we developed these new refinery techniques. And actually, I'm going to Kansas City next week uh, to work with Black & Beach, which was just announced uh, that we're part of one of their first cohorts on this. 
uh, designing our, our modular biorefinery to be put into place at our algae farms. And so what we end up doing is we ship out certain strains to these farms, those farms farm it for us. Uh, they then take it through our particular refining process and then out comes pigments, proteins, plastics, pharmaceuticals, and then we can monetize each uh, stream there. And in yeah. particular, we're focused on proteins first uh, because those are some of the higher value products that you can get out. Uh, when we refine out our pigment, you end up getting the pigment and you get this interesting protein isolate that can be used for plant-based foods. And so uh, particularly focused on the, the, uh, the like food and beverage industry right now, that's where 60% of our business comes from. We get another like 20% or so, uh, 20, 30% from cosmetics, and then another 10% from textiles and materials uh, currently right now. So that's, that's just our focus. And um, so it's, it's a bit challenging to juggle, but I think that one of the things that we're doing with our financial raise that will bring on board uh, a big supporting team. Right now, there's only four people in the company. So it's a lot to manage this big global logistics chain. I barely, I, I try to get my eight hours a day as best as I can, um, but it's been a little bit challenging. And then in particular, um, what we're doing in terms of a business model as well, looking at the largest chemical company in the world, BASF, they started with dyes. They started with dyes because it's kind of like a Tesla Roadster style approach. You start with something that's higher value, mm -hmm and a premium product, and then gradually come down the price curve over time, that's one of the best ways to go about monetizing and commercializing products. So um, yeah, going from, from like that really high price point of pigments, sells for a couple hundred dollars a kilo, you can make more than a living wage and a profit on the basis of that. And we ship out like tens of kilos. We're pushing, um, we're gonna be pushing like up to a hundred kilos pretty soon. Yeah. So a hundred times a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, um, what do you do? Do you have a server or anything on prem to do the machine learning, to do the diagnostic side of things where you take all that data that you've gotten to make, and then, you know, manufacture refining the, the proteins, then making the, the seed stock and sending it back or yeah. how does that, how does the, I think at a uh, Ginkgo Bioworks, which I would like someone to come on and really explain what their platform does. Because Jake and I got into a little bit, but there was an element of like, he was like, I can't tell you all. It's like, but I want to know how does this work? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm stupid open about it right now. So, so we're just like dipping our toe in the water of that right yeah. now, just because we're still in the transition point from laboratory to pilot. And so mm -hmm. we, we have like certain farms that we picked out that are our highest, like highest uh, relationship farms that we're really comfortable with that we'll send our strains to and test out. Um, and so what we do right now and the feedback loop is basically you end up uh, printing out some DNA. And so you can get DNA from a particular DNA synthesis and printing company. There's a particular method to go about doing that. Um, that comes in, you have a known sequence from the organism that you're working with. That took a lot to get with spirulina, to be honest, to characterize it and understand it. Um, and then you end up taking that DNA, you prep it in a particular way where you can insert it into the organism. And then you end up growing it out over a particular period of time. You then end up sequencing that organism to make sure that it's in the right spot. And then that particular organism is now well suited for manufacturing and production. So you send it to the farm and the farm itself ends up growing it. And then it goes to the refinery and then you find out the particular product. So in the sequencing step in that particular stuff, in that little feedback loop in the lab, that takes the most bioinformatics, that takes the most proteomic work, that takes metabolomics. What you're doing there is you're basically taking a look in a couple of different ways. So from a DNA side of things, you're optimizing for the best engineering approach. You're optimizing for how do you insert it into the organism? 
get it expressed in the best possible way. So that's all the, the genetic design element of things and how you design your plasmids, how you design your vectors, how do you get it into the organism, how do you get it expressing quicker and growing faster. And then what ends up happening is that you then take a look at the protein that's produced at the very end. And what you want to do is you design your DNA to go to the protein, right? DNA, RNA protein, um, central dogma biology. So that protein, you do proteomic work. And there's a lot of cool modeling tools that seriously just came out in the past couple months that are all using like, uh, like stable diffusion um, models, like diffusion models to, to kind of imagine better protein structures or uh, AlphaFold2 is really amazing too, more for monomeric proteins than anything else. But you end up doing computational design to, to shorten that solution space. So like what I was talking about before, where you have like 10 to the 60th molecules that you potentially produce, depending on how big your protein is, you want to shorten that window so you can you only have to run like 10,000 experiments or less. And then that gives you a particular throughput on your experiments where you end up uh, inserting those like variations of different genes. And then what really helps is if you have an automated process to do this, this is part of the reason why we're raising is because right now it takes us nine to 10 months to get to an engineered construct and because it's all manual. So like imagine trying to run 10,000 experiments in 10 months. Yeah. That's insane, right? Mm -hmm. But that is what we're doing manually. It's also why I don't sleep much and why like, much of my team doesn't uh, have much time uh, in a given day to, to manage this entire operation. But at the end of it, you have a stable pigment that is perfect replacement for blue dye number one, blue dye number two. And that is something that can be put into production. And so, um, yeah, we're looking at automated tools like microfluidics and different kind of lab robotics to automate all of this, to build like really the first photosynthetic biofoundry of sorts. Um, and then that'll be specifically focused on these filamentous uh, photoautotrophic cyanobacteria uh, that are extremophilic. All of those criteria come into play whenever you're going into manufacturing and being used by our pre-existing manufacturing like capacity and infrastructure and whatnot. They can go out to our farms or farms can grow them. That makes sense. What other, so it sounds like if I'm gonna take a guess at the dartboard of your pie chart of expenses, I'm gonna guess 50% of it's just on labor and just getting it to that point. If you yeah. were, so if you optimize that side of it, what are the other big expenses you have to deal with? Is the supply chain itself? Cause I think al algae when it's been rendered down, it, it might not cost too much to ship it cause yeah, it's pennies. like kind of fluffy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's basically like bulk powders that we're shipping yeah. around, right? Um, and so like once you end up drying it out, most of our farms do solar drying. It's like, uh, I don't know, the, the logistics and shipping are a bit of a headache too, because most of our farms are overseas. So we would like to start selling a little bit more local. And some of our, our like customers like Haynes wanted us to do a project where we were shipping um, more local to wherever they manufacture, wherever the dye house is to test stuff out. So like, it just kind of depends on where the customer is located. So we have a bunch of farms in France. We have a bunch of farms in India. We have some farms in China. We have some farms in Thailand, Peru, Indonesia, Malaysia, Kenya, Ghana, um, I don't know, like all over the world. So part of the decentralized network is right now it's a hub and spoke where they all send to LA, LA, we end up processing and then sending out from there. Um, but in the future, the idea is to be able to implement much more of a distrib distributed decentralized model, because I think after labor costs, our logistic costs are actually some of the highest. Um, the actual cost of production of algae is like pennies on the dollar per 
kilo produced, which is really great because like once you get to a uh, significant scale, um, it's basically cost of a, a cost of salt water and the cost of salt water is really cheap, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then the CapEx expense compared to like a fermentation plant, I did a comparison where it'd be like at least $5 million to set up a fermentation plant that could produce maybe a metric ton a month um, for an algae farm. Uh, you can set up the same kind of thing for like $50,000 or less. You dig a trench, you line it with uh, some sort of liner, you put water in, you put salt in, you put algae in, cover it with the greenhouse, you put it out in the sun, you're good to go. Yeah, I see. So it makes sense that you're focusing on these uh, biofabrications, uh, this capacity to like, make it like a modular design. You could easily find people in a local community, plop down with the, almost like a franchising model, you plop down everything right. they need, and then they're off to the races with the business that takes care of them, so them and their families. Yeah. And then it it meets that local supply chain interest of the, yeah. the decentralized nature of everything. That's really smart. I think I think um, like when we're talking about the next like way that we're going to make things and how we're going to um, go about displacing any sort of fossil fuels, petrochemicals, and uh, combating climate change, a lot of it comes down to leveraging the same techniques that we use to get here. So. Um, I think that we need new versions and varieties of farms. And so this is like farm 2.0. Well, in, in actually like trusting farmers and working with farmers, um, my constituents are farmers. I love talking to all these farms. Um, the second kind of category is the assembly line brought us here, right? And so what is the biological assembly line? Well, that's a biofoundry that's using these robots yeah. and doing all these like repetitive processes that get you to your established organism. Then the next step after that is how do you refine that organism into multiple uh, multiple parts and pieces. That's what we do with plastics right now. That's what we do with oil into plastics and gasoline and all the other things that we end up using. And then lastly, the computer piece, the, the kind of like computational piece leads to greater efficiencies in the system. Yeah. And so like, I see that flywheel effect turning over time and the stepwise method and approach that we're going through, uh, the seed round is specifically focused on the biofoundry so I can speed up the time for engineering and I can get more products out into the world. Mm -hmm. When so Walmart, I think as an end person makes like three cents for every dollar. Like they don't make a lot, but it's the scale that makes them a lot. Farmers, mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's about the, I think it's like ten percent. Like they don't they, they get they get yeah, gypped. That's about they the, get gypped that's a lot. About the margin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the farm people don't realize this. Farmers, but like if you look at main, I, I don't know if I'm going to go too much on a tangent here, but basically <laughs> the the people who buy the product set the prices and they're always bringing the prices lower so imagine having right. a household a family and they're constantly cutting costs and stuff like that it's very frustrating so right. when you look at a dollar uh what what do you expect you know optimally if it's too like revealing uh to be taken home yeah i mean i call it right now right now we're we're doing about 50 percent margins right now yeah. and that's particularly just because we offer a specialized dye product that already has a high price point like we sell anywhere from like uh, 350 to 500 per kilo, depending on the, the volume and scale. So like we're making quite a bit of money every single month. Like I said, we're, we're mostly break even. And so on the flip side of that though, um, for farmers, what I want to do is maintain like 20% margins for the farms. And um, I've been working with a consortium of these farms to set up uh, something that I've just been, just christened the army, the Algae Resource Management Institute. Think of it kind of like OPEC for algae pricing. And awesome. so like you, you can maintain pricing and uh, reserves and all this kind of stuff. Because the minute it's dried, it's like stable for years. 
And so at the end of the day, what we want to do if we're producing raw materials is make sure that everybody in the supply chain has an equitable and really sustainable livelihood by the basis of this. And so some of the, these farms, though, in developing communities, they don't need as much money as, as like we do in the developed world. And so in particular, they're getting paid way more than a living wage there and making plenty of money. And that's, that's kind of what I want to maintain. I don't want to push them down to like less than $2 a day. That's miserable. Instead, what I want to do is kind of maintain their livelihood and standards and kind of like raise the bottom billion if at all possible. Mm -hmm. What uh, I don't, I was thinking, I always have like kind of somewhat abstract uh, mile markers to then do my numbers off of. It's usually like a million dollars a month or depending on the business, like a million dollars a year. Sure. How much, how much more, it sounds like in terms of production, you can do that pretty quickly in terms of scaling to where you can fill a yeah. million dollars in orders. So then yeah. what's standing in the way other than just customers being, you know, welcoming of it till you get to that level? Yeah. So, so a couple of things. So three things are standing in the way right now. So one of them is, is financial. Like we're only able to turn over as much in terms of uh, capacity as we have financing for. And mm -hmm. so in particular, um, there's a tipping point when it comes to debt-based financing or PO financing, where banks will only finance you past a certain point and then SVB happened. And so I was, I was like pushing to that point. We were hitting about 250,000 a year or more. And, um, what was going on was once we hit like 300,000 or more, some of the banks would start looking at us or we could do community banks and they would come about and like do debt financing for us. Um, and so what ended up happening though is SVB happened, all the banks, all the, the like debt, venture debt dried up. And so there's, there's nothing around that'll lend at that low level. And so the next tipping point now is like, if you're doing anywhere from 500 to a million AR. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the, challenge right now is kind of pushing our sales to that figure so that I'm able to leverage some debt to be able to do debt financing vehicles for some of these larger purchase orders, especially. I have 142 active clients and we have, so the other kind of problem is we only have four people. And so I'm packing and shipping all of these things myself. Like I have a bunch of jars that are labeled like Spira Blue and whatnot. Um, and these are next to me because I'm doing all this manually. I'm doing all the business development ops. Um, and packing and shipping and, and whatnot. So um, that being said, like having some additional cooks, having some additional like people in the, in the kitchen would help us cook a lot faster, right? Um, and so I have some really talented people waiting the wings that I really want to hire. And so that's what some of this uh, investment round is going to go towards. And then lastly is kind of processing partners. So um, I think the stepwise method of, of producing our, our colors and pigments right now for these waiting customers is initially what we're going to have to do is like uh, leverage a, a centralized processing partner as a means of producing our stuff. Um, we're reliant on a couple of like old school solvent extraction techniques, which only produce the pigment. They don't produce the protein. They, they really don't produce any other part of the algae. It's kind of sludge at the end of it, which can be used as a carbon capture credit, which is fine. But at the same point, I would rather like get more products out of the same biomass. And so we found a really good processing partner in Houston that I would love to leverage. And then we, if we're, for like a series A, we're planning on building a pilot refinery where then it becomes a little bit more decentralized and closer to the farm. And so in, in doing that, then the stepwise thing is initially focused on the biofoundry and demonstrating engineering and trying to get tighter with the different products that we could potentially produce and getting better and better and better about the engineering of these pigments. The next step is implementing the uh, biorefinery and showcasing how it's able to extract out these different compounds. 
And that's when we start expanding more towards like cosmetic clients and textile clients. And so this is just in pigments though. We've had people approach us about biomanufacturing different kinds of industrial enzymes uh, because we can do metric tons of this stuff, right? Um, we have people approach us about producing protein-based sweeteners, uh, cosmetic additives and different kinds of texturizing ingredients, uh, all kinds of other food products because we work with a general, generally regarded as safe strain. Um, yeah, all of the things that synthetic biology is trying to do in terms of manufacturing, I think we can take on a bunch of these projects. Um, some of the things that we're a little bit ill-suited towards right now are more pharmaceuticals and then like plastics in particular, like bulk plastics. I could do, uh, we, we did a project with um, plastic enzymes and, and plastic plasticizers as well, uh, different kind of coatings or lubricants as well. So those are some of the things that we've been investigated in the past, but I, I'm very gung-ho about initially starting at the top of the price curve and specifically yeah. focused on protein-based materials. No, I agree with that methodology and that model. The, that's one of the things that really bothers me about the alt protein cell la, cell ag type uh, models is they all a lot not all of them but a lot of them are trying to spend five ten million dollars to get to the price point of you know you know basic cheap which you know it's fine but if you spend ten million dollars why not build a Maserati like build something freaking amazing yeah. with all this I, pack I want to have power. polar bear meat you know yeah. I want to I want to have a Taylor Swift burger. I want right, like right, those kind right. of things. That's experiential. <laughs> Not Taylor Swift. Not Taylor no, 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 Swift. No, but that's that's what I mean. Like if you're doing cell ag, like this is this is my yes. beef cell ag pun intended, is beef. that if you're focused on commodity meat markets, what you're doing is you're trying to compete with a well-established thing. Mm -hmm. Instead, because you're developing this crazy technology, think like really far out, very, very crazy, and develop a product that's an experience that is a luxury good or a very premium product. And something that people pay a lot of money for. Otherwise, your technology will never reach market unless you raise tons and tons of money at that point. Then it's not, it's a bad ROI for investors. So yeah. this is what I learned when people were trying to go for biofuels: is that the DOE funneled over a billion dollars into biofuels, investors funneled over a billion dollars into biofuels, and it was a bust. And the reason why biofuels were more or less bullshit was because they were focused on commodity industries. When it costs you a thousand dollars to produce a gallon of of oil but it's $5 in the market, you're going to lose $995 per sale. And that's, that's what I see a lot right now with cell ag and synthetic biology companies. And it just blows my mind because you, you got to start out with positive unit economics. If you kind of trust scale will get you there, it's a, it's a no-go, man. Yeah, I think the problem there, and I, I say this with, with kindness and love, I think the problem there is, I think it's a lot of PhD scientists looking at the problem for... Yep. And I think maybe they could they could do with like taking their business model and going to like some MBAs or like some established places and just having sure. them just tear the crap out of the model or something because it just seems like their heart's in the right place. I want to feed the world at this cheap price point. It's great. I don't know how you're going to get investors there. Start out the premium and then work your way to the point where you can feed everybody. But yeah. So for for years you have the financing issue. I don't know how you would structure this. This is just an idea I had. But I talked to someone else in a in like a, a another creative way where you um you essentially like. You create, you like partner with other businesses that aren't competitors to you that are, that cumulatively you make that 500 to a million dollar price point per year. And then you get that, that amount of money. And then it's just dis distributed to people at that rate, that reduced rate. So you save money. So with partnering with other people just to raise the money as a debt, like a financing thing, 
um, as an option to get the amount you want at the price point you want, which will then benefit you and the other people and allow you, all of you guys, to uh, continue to funnel at the level you want and kind of weather that storm. So it's kind of like the union model or uh, like the, the army model. You're pulling people together to maintain the, the, the price point that would actually keep you profitable. I don't know how you yeah. structure that legally, uh, but I, I wonder if that's possible. I know that there have been people who've done that in other ways that I've suggested. Um, I wonder how it would work with finance. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think what you're talking about is a bit of the PO financing mentality, meaning like I'm getting customer demand from food and beverage companies and cosmetic companies and textile companies that are saying, this is the price point that we want. This is the amount that we want. Um, this is how much money we would spend on this. And then being able yeah. to turn that back to some sort of uh, venture debt or debt vehicle where they can say, hey, we'd lend out at this rate. Um, and then I can go to my farmers and I can say, hey, if you front this money, I can pay back within a certain 90 day period or whatever, right? And so in doing so, you end up creating product for virtually nothing. And th those are the kind of things that I'm really intrigued by because it starts this really virtuous cycle. This is what, what you ended up seeing a lot with solar. Um, so solar farms used to be unprofitable and then eventually got to a certain scale where they became really profitable and generating um, really understandable returns for banks. And once it gets to that point where financiers really understand it, that's when it becomes a repetitive fashion. Like it, it's nothing stopping it, right? Like it's it's a it's a ball rolling downhill. And so being able to showcase something, and, and this is the challenge in this market. It needs to beat current interest rates. It needs to beat uh, like inflation, and then it also has to have a significant amount of return that's above market for investors. And so th those are the kind of things that are in the back of my mind, where I know because we have such a high margin product right now, and that there's such a high demand that I can generate that. I think the, the hurdle right now is the, the valley of death is what they call it, right? That's where VC does really, really well, where we have never raised a, any kind of seed round or anything like that. It's been mostly bootstrapped or angels or like tiny VCs, right? Micro VCs. Um, total amount of money I've raised in seven years is 900K. That's it, right? We've mostly subsisted on sales. We've done 560,000 in sales. Uh, we got an NSF SBIR grant, which is really exciting. Um, and then, yeah, we just, we just kind of hustled, you know? And so in doing so, we've gotten to the point where we have four products. We've sent out samples to over a thousand different customers. Um, like I said, we have 142 active clients and yeah, I think there's enough demonstrated traction where, um, I'm just now launching our investment round and I'm really only opening up for a period of a couple of weeks. And then in doing so, I'm just hitting it really, really hard talking to as many people as possible trying to find the right partners and then hopefully closing a term sheet by the end of August. Yeah. Well, I wish you luck and I don't mean it sarcastically. I'd love for you to be successful. Oh, uh, is there, that. is there an ideal, like if there's, if there's a person out there listening right now, if you could describe the investor you'd love to partner with the, the characteristics, yeah. the attributes, maybe they're like, Oh, that's Je that's Jen Jennifer or Benjamin or whatever, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe someone knows someone listening. Yeah. Jennifer. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I, I really am looking for somebody who's well-versed in agricultural biotechnology. Um, I am looking for somebody who understands climate um, and climate investing really well, um, who has a good understanding of like uh, carbon capture impact models, other things like that. Um, I think that people that are really focused on climate, climate is a very broad subject, but if you do climate biotech, that'd be amazing. Um, Biotechnology in particular, any experience in scaling bioproducts, biomanufacturing, bioprocessing, anything like that is really, really cool. 
we work in the food industry, the cosmetic industry, the textile industry. That's really pertinent and very important. Um, we specifically uh, operate in international business, so international supply chain and logistics as well. If you have any experience there too, right now we're we're like paying probably twenty percent of our margin or twenty percent of our costs are in logistics, just getting yeah. it to us, getting it to the customer. And so anything that can help manage that or help improve upon that, um, and part of that is just the scale of it too. Um, and then in addition, I'm looking for people who are help who, who can help with talent recruiting. Um, we're building out a bit of an AI informatics uh, side of things, just as a means of speeding up our overall process too uh, of engineering work. So yeah, that's part of the reason why I moved up to the Bay as part of the people that I'm trying to meet. Um, anybody who has experience in building out biofoundries or any AI informatics uh, want to start uh, moving and shifting from just uh, computers over into biology, that'd be awesome. Um, I'm always down for also teaching people. I started out more as a hacker than anything else, where I was working with DNA when I was 14 in my mom's kitchen and really doing my best to create glowing frogs. And so I, I've loved the idea of using DNA as more of a creative expression tool. And so I think some of the cool things about um, even interacting with me and part of the reason why people like working with me is they always learn a lot. And so I see investors as, as part and parcel to the team as well. And so in particular, uh, something that struck me is we've outlasted some of our investors too. So we've been around now for seven years. And in particular, um, in this iteration, in this version, really, it's only been about a year or so. And so I've outlasted uh, some of the investment funds that have invested in us. They no longer exist. And so I'm looking for like brand name investors, big name investors, uh, people that will last a long time, and people that have access to downstream financing to make subsequent rounds really easy. And uh, yeah. What do you do when, what happens to the, the equity or what have you when the fund dies? I mean, not dies, but they just naturally close after like 10 or eight years. Yeah. Well, so what ends up happening is that the um, accountants and the lawyers are still like on retainer, I guess. There's enough funding where they check in every single year, just get an update and whatnot. But um, yeah, the partners are no longer active. And so they're, they're all off doing other things. So I check in with them occasionally, but it's more as like friends than anything else. And yeah. maybe like they have help here and there, but in particular, like they're not no, no longer actively investing, no longer actively involved in the management of the fund. So it's, it's really weird, but um, it is something where, yeah, I had this like weird experience of one of my investors being like, hey, can I come work with you? And I was like, I, what? <laughs> um, so, so there's stuff like that, you know, where uh, looking ahead, I see Spira as a really substantial multi-billion dollar company um, where we're able to manufacture a hell of a lot of different things. And in terms of scaling globally, we really need the capital to go about doing that. And I never feel like we, we the maximum amount of money that we ever had in the account was like $270,000, right? That's not a lot to plan long-term for a company. And so having the capital to go about actively building out uh, all the things that we need in order to properly put this into practice. We've been super scrappy. Um, I'm ready to just put the rubber to the road and really go. Yeah. The, I think, well, I think there might be a branding opportunity here. If you were to change your name from just Spirit to Spirit AI, I think you'd immediately raise $2 million. <laughs> I mean, If you're, you're going to have AI machine learning going on there, you, you got to have like 
Also, our farmers have uh, meta, you know, VR, so they can like, you know, imagine themselves on a beach while they're like these little yeah. tiny VR headsets on each of our algae, yeah, so that they're content while they're being farmed. Yeah, it's it's a VR AR uh, uh, play w- w- that happens to have uh, some spirulina in it. You sprinkle some crypto in there too, you know? yeah, like all well, of I mean, that. Yeah, we we haven't talked a lot about decentralized networks. You know, for all for all the listeners know so far, maybe we were talking about some blockchain Ooh. to connect everything, <laughs> and and you know, some type of like sovereignty thing where like people can like own the token, like uh, uh, sure. uh, DAOs or whatever the heck coin, they're called, right? Yeah. Um, so so one of the one of the key principles too is that from a regulatory framework perspective some of the countries that we're operating in are far better suited and better equipped to grow engineered organisms and so that's part of the reason why we're working with such a diverse group and then in particular anytime there's a supply chain interruption from like global panini or a huge panorama that's going on um like what interrupted us the past couple years then we're able to shift over supply to whoever is available so like those, those are kind of the benefits of dealing with this larger network. We can also end up having all this capacity without having to spend money on it too, which is kind of, that's, that's a fun bit. Yeah. The, I recently been talking to some people that work out in the Middle East and apparently there's a, a lot of the governments there have just a lot of excess money. And one area that they're trying to go into is food security. Right. Singapore, the Middle East, like they're, they're, desperately trying to make it so that they're not net importers i think it's trying to, trying to get to like 30 percent. they don't expect to get 100 sure. percent. but with with what you're building the salt water's there in the gulf you know they yeah. they have uh you know the, a pr- pretty easy to set up some type of solar thing like it is a desert in the middle east i think yeah. like uh potentially like your thing could scale quite well there so yeah you might be it's able to handle land yeah you know? not um, using for anything I- um, I'm also like really testing the food security angle of things. So I got really interested in can somebody actively live on an only algae diet? And yeah. so I'm I'm going through that process right now, actually. So I have like some algae broth here. Um mm. that I was, you showed like, this to drinking. me earlier. It yeah. looks like Japanese uh I don't know, miso so it's soup. Miso soup. It, it's uh it's kombu, right? Which is the base stock of miso soup. And it's actually super filling. It's kind of like bone broth. Um, and then I made a algae pancake, uh, using like carrageenan, chlorella, uh, what else did I end up mixing in, uh, algae oil. Um, I ended up making, uh, like dulse bacon, which is really good. So I'm combining seaweed. I'm combining microalgae, I'm combining cyanobacteria. I do like a spirulina shake for my protein requirements. Um, yeah, there's in, in just algae over the past couple of days. And um, the the biggest challenge that I'm actually having is much more calories than anything else. So um, yeah, I I I highly recommend it. I actually, sorry, I'm testing it out so that I can recommend it to people. I'm taking all this biometric data on myself. So weight, um, I'm doing a continuous blood glucose monitor. I'm doing a gut microbiome panel, doing metabolic panel. Uh, yeah. So I also did a water fast going in so that I could have base gut, gut microbiome in order to start. So all of these various things. Um, and like, I'm surprisingly energetic. Uh, after like the first day or two of adjustment, it's I've been regular, I've, I've been doing all the things that I've been doing. It's kind of exciting, to be honest. And you're getting all your nutritional requirements? So I'm getting all of my micronutritional requirements and all of my macros in the protein category in particular. 
Uh, what I'm lacking more so than anything else is fats and calories. And so that's been more of the difficulty. And so um, this is just like my first iteration of this diet. I think I'm going to try it again and be a little bit better prepared there where I'll specifically be looking at how do you get your, um, your macros when it comes to fats. Uh, there's, there were a couple of algae oil companies that went out of business. And so, um, in particular, I'm thinking of like Corbion had their like, or Terravia had their algae oil, AlgaWise, which was sold in Walmart for a bit. And I was looking all over for that, but they don't sell that anymore. And so, um, yeah, one of the dreams of mine is to actually start manufacturing all of the basic nutritional requirements using algae. Um, so that's something to shoot for. Yeah, I've been, uh, when I have people on for Cell Ag, I talk often about this like McDonald's type organization where you could have like a microbrewery or just like a front using all proteins where like all the ingredients, all the stuff comes together and it's made there locally. Like yeah. imagine Subway, but you can get it from base parts all the way on up. I think that'd be such an experience to have. I know they did yeah. some like weird stuff where like they took frog cells and whatnot, which is kind of weird. And they ate like frog legs in front of the frogs, but I think it would be oh, really God. interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, kinda... I, I'm really actually like, here's a hiring hack. So I love, hiring um this so I, I organize my scientific teams in threes and the reason for doing that is you want somebody who's like the phd and super knowledgeable and then you want the hacker type and then you want the project manager who's, who's trying to make everything run right and so um in particular when i'm hiring the like hacker type and i'm looking for lab techs one of the things that i do is i look at uh culinary kitchens and the reason for that is that the same like work as somebody in a kitchen it's the same sort of thing as in a laboratory. You are following a recipe. You are repeating tasks again and again and again and again. There's a high expectation of repeatability and, and stability of whatever your work is. You have to put out a lot of those experiments every single night. And in particular, I think people in kitchens are probably going to love working in labs a whole lot more because there's better stability and better pay. So, uh, and you don't have to sacrifice your weekends to it. But yeah, and the camaraderie there and everything like that, there's just like a kitchen culture that um, has been really interesting to play with and has a dynamic in my laboratory. So those, those are some of the things I like looking at alternative ways or alternative groups of people yeah. as a means of bringing them into biology. Yeah, that's interesting. I like uh, when you can pull from diverse uh, backgrounds and get different perspectives. It sounds like you're looking more for like chefs. I think like a cook at like KFCs or something is probably not, but it does, not. they yeah. do follow a recipe. They do yeah. follow. Yeah. I went, I went to a KFC and there was one woman running the whole show. She's like, do you own this? Like, why are you doing this? Like, wow. no, this is how I support my family. It's like, do they pay you more for running the whole They're Like she had like the system of like, drop this, do this, like, everything. Like it was like an octopus, just like what she was doing. It's like, you're yeah. not getting paid enough. You're not getting paid enough. It's right. like, don't, don't, right. don't mention it or else I'll get fired. Cause like, there's supposed to be other people and blah, blah, blah. It's like, if, if they're supposed to close down and not even be open, but, um, wow. so maybe, you know, following recipes and, uh, you know, uh, uh, what have you. So one thing, one thing that I like about, uh, the technology you're building is this concept of, of like post-apocalyptic world. And we kind of talked <laughs> about it a little bit so far. And so I, I wonder you know, we, we glass the planet, whatever, using just your, your, uh, your algae, how can we rebuild society? The, the one mm. thing that I thought was really cool from a talk you just gave on, um, seasteading where people like live on the sea or whatever, yeah. um, the, is this idea of, uh, wastewater. Cause 
There, there. I mean, Flint, Michigan's are everywhere. There's also a place in Poland oh, yeah. that literally uses clamps to detect if the water's clean or not. And so right, I wonder right. if there would be. I, I'm constantly wondering, and I had this conversation with George Church. Some of it off the air. We just kept talking after the time was supposed That's to be awesome. off. But he's I'm so not gonna cool. tell him to go away. I'm not gonna tell him to go away. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just enjoy it until he says he's done. Uh, but anyways, uh, I think I made him late to his next meeting. But uh, we'll see if he comes back next year. The so. <laughs> How, how what are some ways that we can uh change things from metal material to uh a biomanufacturing type principle and make yeah. us more elastic as an organ uh, as a society like one of the w- one of the problems with manufacturing things the normal way is like lead all these other things can leach into things but whereas yeah. biology yeah. biology kind of just inherently does exactly what it's told or it just kills itself you know like it doesn't really yeah. do much it like it just it's like <laughs> a little happy clamp so uh yeah. the world goes through an apocalypse how do we rebuild it? Let's let's have dr- clean drinking water. Let's have clean food. What? Do, how do you think yeah. about the solution? Well, so so there's an organization called All Fed that's sort of like a spinoff of um, uh, open philanthropy and the effective altruism movement, where they were talking about exactly that, like how would we feed people in the event of an apocalypse? And came down to two things: it's like mushrooms and algae. And so mm. mushrooms to deal with all the waste material. Like mushrooms are really good at growing yeah. on waste. And actually, when I was living in the moon habitat, that was kind of my question of like, how do you sustainably produce materials and edible compounds for a habitat? Um, and so in particular, mushrooms can grow on all this biological waste. Algae can also grow on biological waste. So all algae really needs is like fertilizers like NPK, um, which nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, you can find that in your poop, you can find that in your pee. Uh, there's been experiments that have been done that grow algae on urine. Um, and so what you do is you dilute it, you feed it to the algae pond that can treat a whole lot of wastewater. You need a bit of a freshwater source from the beginning. Otherwise, what ends up happening is that you're kind of like feeding all this gunk to the algae and eventually it'll crash. Um, that being said, though, you have all kinds of like interesting species of algae just naturally grow in wastewater streams already. And so in particular, you can isolate all of the algae that's growing in there. It's growing on waste and converting that into usable compounds. And so some of the ways that we could potentially start regrowing or rebuilding is like take the algae that is growing on all this waste material and start using it in various ways to create materials or go about creating like food products or do all those kind of things. Um, there was a spinoff company. So we got approached by an investor who was very interested in, in algae for biomining. And I spent a good six months really doing a deep dive on this. And there's all these mine tailing ponds that you look at them and they're growing all sorts of color, colorful bacteria. That's that's algae, right? Like it's using all these pigments to grow. And in particular, um, what you can do is you can pick and isolate that algae, you can enhance those properties, you put it back in and it'll grab more and more metals from the environment. And so by doing that, you can take very low grade ores that were then dumped into waste sites and then use that as a means of grabbing all the metals and minerals. Um, there's also like a couple of other really interesting species. There's like the radioactive fungus that grows on radioactivity. Um, mm-hmm. One of the cool things about that though, is that when you think about it, what it's doing is it's growing on electromagnetic radiation. It's growing on the same kind of stuff where if you look at the pigments that algae produces, those are absorbing electromagnetic waves. So if you get like a particular mutated pigment in some kind of way, it would be able to absorb uh, radioactive materials, right? And so those are the kind of interesting things. It'll cause DNA damage. There's a bunch of other protective elements and other things Mm -hmm. associated with that, but it could use that energy in various ways. So those are the interesting things about using algae is like, it's really good as a bioremediator. It's really good as a chelator. It'll grab metals from its environment very, very quickly because it does that like just naturally. 
And so then when you pull that algae out of the water and spin it on down, what you end up finding is that you have all this metal in there. And so it's a really good way to grab metals from the environment. The investor like spent six months leading us on and then pulled out. And so um, I still have a lot of those materials. I still have the basic team in place. Um, but yeah, we invested about $50,000 in trying to develop that business. And if anybody wants to talk about biomining, I know a lot of people in biomining now. Uh, we set up some relationships with Albemarle, which is like one of the largest like lithium and bromine mining companies. And then um, also Ivanhoe. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I heard you talk about how you're trying to get gold from water. Mm -hmm. it, it reminded me of that guy from Shark Tank that was trying to like make like a typhoon to like silt all the, the, the water out or whatever. But it had to be like, yeah. it was like a ridiculous amount of water that needed to go through it to get like a decent amount of gold. Yeah. Um, yeah so well, well, there's gold in seawater, right? Yeah. And ARPA yeah. just released an announcement for like a funding request for companies that were looking to use seaweed to grab gold or grab metals from seawater. Um, I mean, the U.S. is really looking to onshore uh, some of the critical metal and mineral industries, uh, stuff like things that are used in battery production yeah, um, or different kind of semiconductors. And so, yeah, we have mineral deposits in the United States. And actually something really interesting that just happened is phosphorus, which used to uh, apparently used to be locked up in, in Morocco. And there's a group called, I, I think it's OCP, um, that's the Morocco, Moroccan government-owned phosphorus industry. 75% um, of the world's reserves were there. Norway just discovered a, a big deposit of phosphorus, and that's now doubled the world's capacity of phosphorus. So that's that's kind of cool, too. Um, but I think like when we're talking about raw materials in particular, uh, yeah, being able to like grab things more effectively without destroying environments. So bioleaching and uh, bioremediation and biomining, all of those things are really effective at doing that. Alonia, which is a spinoff company from Ginkgo, ends up identifying uh, waste water, like waste products in wastewater. Um, some of the interesting things that they're doing, they just raised $30 million on the basis of that. So they, there's some cool stuff happening in that space, I think. Uh, some Vita factory and Probectus algae. We're both trying to do something there. I don't know how well it's going. Who knows? But we may see biology be used more and more in metal mining, especially for low, lower grade ores. Yeah. Well, they, there's steampunk, you know, like this time where like everything was steam or whatever. Yeah. I, I like this idea of biopunk. You know, everything's just like a, a living city, you know? Yes. You don't have like that, uh, that concrete that like makes like this weird concrete like this heat sink that like burns cities or whatever you have like yeah. a living organism that like lives off of the heat or oh, whatever. I just, I just finished this awesome sci-fi book series called Leviathan. And so it's all about like a living airship. Um, it's really cool. I think you'd really like it. So it's like a series of three books. Um, and it's all about uh, the use of organisms. It, it's set during world war one and kind of like a quasi steampunk biopunk world. I think you'd, you'd dig it. Yeah, no, it sounds fun. I'm gonna definitely check it out. While we're on the topic of books, I, I would just ask you this later, but why not check it now? What are sure. other book series that you would recommend people check out? I ask every. I made a list. You actually shared this. I've like 300. It was like 300 or 400 books that like 150 people have recommended on the show or something. But yeah, yeah so I have to update that list. So what what are some books that you recommend to me or the audience that are excited for what the the topics we're talking about today? I I actually just went to a book club this past week, so this is pretty pertinent. But I'm looking at my like recently read books. Um, 
I think one of the ones that I read recently that was kind of fun. Um, well, Adrian Tchaikovsky, uh, like uh, children, his like children of series is really good. Um, that's something where there's this like virus that lands on a planet that mutates spiders uh, in advance of human colonists getting there. And so these spiders become like super sentient and develop like these ant computers. And it's just, it's awesome because it goes through the chronology and development of those spiders and also the colonist ship as it's getting there. Um, the Rosie Project was another really fun read recently where it's this guy who puts out a survey. He's, he's Asperger's and self-declared and he puts out a survey um, trying to find the perfect match. And this book like made me laugh out loud because he finds somebody who like is not the perfect woman, but like ends up with her anyways. Um, let me see some of the other things. I love uh, Dave Grohl's more recent book, The Storyteller, just because like Dave Grohl is like a personal hero of mine. He's lead singer of the Foo Fighters, was the drummer mm -hmm. for Nirvana. He has some amazing stories about the music industry and I love playing music and being involved in all of that. Um, I have a fascination with airships. And so there's a series by Kenneth Opal, uh, which is all about these, these like, airships too. Um, I think airships are, are one of the best ways to transport cargo point to point. Um, David Sedaris is hilarious. Malcolm Gladwell just put out a book, but Kurt Vonnegut really is my like favorite author of all time, I would say. But Catch-22 is my favorite book of all time. And these are, these are all um, fiction books in particular. I think from like a nonfiction perspective, I just read 12 Rules for Life, um, which was awesome. Um, that was really, really, really good. Uh, Ted Chang has a lot of really good short stories. Yeah. Um, I'm just like looking through my books. Uh, Neil Gaiman and like all of his writing. You have the Sandman behind you. Yeah. I really, really love his stuff. Uh, Sandman's yeah, amazing. If you're, if you're looking for like biopunk, um, there's one called Ribofunk, which is a, mm. a really cool book of short stories. Also, Paolo Bassi Gallupi uh, ended up putting out a book where uh, it's called The Wind-Up Girl Chronicles. That's also really good. Chuck Palahniuk is also another favorite author of mine. I read a ton. I read yeah. probably like a book every week or so. Maybe yeah. maybe a little bit less than that. And I so think, I always have something in rotation, man. I think you would like the book uh, Project Hail Mary by... Uh, oh, the, dude. Yeah. Yeah. That was such a good... Uh, uh, like Rocky... Oh, have you read the book? Oh, it's like, yeah, it's a buddy... Like buddy story they're like yeah. oh it's well, so cute how they make the solution at the end is basically how you know you build you know um where you raise up the right strain you know like you like do mm -hmm. the experiments you test them yeah. out and then he just he like he, he expedited the explanation but they kind of explain it i actually watched sure. an interview with him and apparently um like he did the math on like the bacteria and everything like this is how much this is what was happening so we have to have this amount of things and like he actually did the math like on an Excel spreadsheet of everything that was going on in that book. I was like, that's all awesome. right, that's a level of realism that I appreciate and respect. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I listened, I listened to a podcast where he was talking about how he enjoys doing the, the like backstory and like world building and math side of things, yeah. probably more than he enjoys the writing of the story, which I think is kind of funny. Um, I, I am also a big geek about science fiction. I, during the pandemic, I wrote a chunk of a science fiction book as well that kind of has a biopunk flavor associated with it. It's more about Venus in particular. Uh, one of Under my- fire. <laughs> Huh? 
He said, I'm your fire. It's, it's about me. I'm your fire. No, I'm going to get striked now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I think one of my, my more controversial and um, contrarian viewpoints is that we're actually going the wrong way when it comes to Mars. Like Mars is cold. It's dead. It's, it's kind of like airless. Venus has tons of CO2 that you can turn into stuff using algae. Uh, and you can end up floating in the clouds in eternal sunshine in a nice, like, warm atmosphere. Uh, if you're 50 kilometers above the cloud surface, it's actually Earth temperature and pressure normal. And so you can use a lot of materials on Venus, like, like some of the sulfuric acid. There's specific species that are adapted to that to grow all kinds of things. So I would rather live in a cloud city, to be honest, like a biological cloud city, than live in caves on Mars. That, that just sounds so much more appealing to me. And yeah. it's already, like, Earth's temperature pressure gravity normal it's also easier to get to it's faster you can do a kind of arrow breaking in the clouds it's just easier to get to you know it's like why aren't we doing more venus stuff well there's the venetians that won't let us land there we have a treaty from <laughs> 1970 well you know that we uh, the russians got a, a satellite to land and you know the, sh- the the photos weren't very good the um, <laughs> the uh i I, have you heard of the guy Liver King? Like the, the like these big roided out dude, Liver King. No, okay, it's this big no. guy. He said he, he like he's like eat liver. Is that why he's Liver uh, he, King? He's like he his whole oh thing God. was like his whole stick was like I'm a man. I'm an alpha man. I you know whale testicles or some crap for testicles. Like he <laughs> but he like he takes to uh, he like it's all fake. But anyways, I, I think similar branding for you might go far. Like Mister Algae, and you just have like a really like like every like your whole outfit is your algae that yeah. you've made i've been rocking kinda... the the like bob ross you know a little bit like a bit of a fro i'm, I'm entering into my bob ross era with this like poof it's kind of mad sciencey yeah, you can dye your hair blue or you can dye your hair every color of the pigments that you uh you can create well so so before i had been experimenting with my pigments to dye my hair and so yeah. like i had been dyeing my hair using the algae pigments with like a base um dye and it worked relatively well like i had green hair i had bluish hair uh stuff like that i was gonna go for a red and then i i also recognized that uh there's a danger in doing that too because if i'm mixing up my own chemicals for dyeing my hair I tested it out on some of my hair strands and it caused it to like degrade and fall apart. And I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be dyeing my hair using a homemade formula and mix for all these hair dyes. But I've also sent out our pigments to a bunch of different hair dye companies. And so I hope they come back to us uh, with some formulated products. Yeah. And then uh, I don't think we answer this specifically. So for investors listening in, is there an amount you're looking for? Yeah, yeah. So we're raising a $3 million round. It is uh, mostly going to come in through safe notes if somebody wants to put a value on us. That's cool. Uh, our last valuation cap was at like a $10 million. Um, I'm super open about everything that we end up doing. So you got any questions, just ping me at Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T, at S-P-I-R-A-I-N-C.com, spiritinc.com. Um, I'm much better at sort of like answering texts and phones, so I might shift over to that. Um in particular, yeah, we're looking to use that round to expand into the cosmetic marketplace. So I have some really great salespeople that are going to come on board and help with cosmetic sales that used to work in that industry um, that deserve to get paid something, right? And then I have some people who are going to double down on our food sales, food and beverage sales, uh, and then building out our science team in order to enable that photosynthetic biofabric. Yeah. Well, um, 
I just keep thinking of, uh, I don't know if they're great ideas, but you keep like turning them into nice ones where it's like, what if you did like the Jake Paul people where you made your own like Gatorade out of algae? Like you have like a whole suite of products um, where you like you own the, like the whole supply line. Like it's like a, like a, like a cottage town almost. But yeah, um, yeah if you go uh, to our Instagram or even our website, we end up listing out a lot of the different product examples mm -hmm. that we ended up coming up with. Um, yeah, we constantly get, to buy people about different experiments that they end up doing, different clients that we send out products to. Um, it's kind of heartwarming to see all the different variations, but we've done everything from like Takis to uh, tortillas to baked goods to various candy products, marshmallows, uh, hair dyes, nail polish, eyeshadow, lipstick. Um, let's see what else. Like anything that you can think of with a color in it, we've probably... Um, yeah. And so some of the more recent experiments have been textile companies chasing us down to try to get us to help them dye stuff. It's just right now, petrochemical based dyes for textiles are super cheap. And so when we're coming on down the price curve, we're starting with food and beverage and cosmetics, yeah. just because the price point's a lot higher. Yeah. And then the best way to stay up to date, is it the Instagram? Is it the website? Where can people just at a glance, maybe if you had like an, like a quarterly newsletter, I think that'd be great too. Yeah, yeah. If you go to our website, you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, I send it out more or less like either monthly or quarterly. Um, that'll keep you up to date on most everything. Um, beyond that, though, uh, yeah, check in on our Instagram. We tend to post all of the different things associated with our um, our different experiments, especially whatnot. And then um, you can always follow along with me in particular. Like my social media, all my social is that M-R-E, T-H-A-T-M-R-E, that Mr. E. And then um, for Spira, it's at S-P-I-R-A-I-N-C, Spira Inc. That's where you can find all of our stuff, our website and everything. Yeah. And then the last question I have as a joke is uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are going to be fighting soon. What if, we, if we're both leveraging a dollar for, uh, you know, the different people, who do you think is going to win? I think the world loses, man. Um, <laughs> let's see. I, I think... Uh, Choose option I C. I, <laughs> Nothing. If they're, if they're fighting and raising money for charity, fine. Oh, no, I think, okay. no I think it's just like they're playing. Like they're just like having a bout. I don't think they're actually going to beat each other up in a mean way. Like they're billionaires. They're not actually going to go to the mat. I don't know, man. I, so I think, um, I think training trumps size and weight. Uh, yeah. Like nine times out of ten, training trumps size and weight. And so, um, yeah, I think zuck has yeah zuck's got it in the bag if they actually do end up fighting but like knowing elon um yeah he'll he'll pull something out of the hat or he'll prep too a little mm -hmm. bit i think um yeah right now i think he's just egging it on but in particular i think those are things like there are people fucking starving in the world you know like there there are other things to worry about than than billionaires i do see billionaires running the world right now and i would like us to get to a much more like equitable place where we care very a lot less about billionaires egging each other on on various social media platforms you know well as long as they punch each other i think i'm, I'm fine with the, the blood sport but the I'm i hear sure. your point yeah. yeah i hear your point the i think of the two i'll go with zuckerberg because zuckerberg has only one company where mark uh where elon has so many so i think mark has more time to to train like elon so, i think he's just yeah. too dead he just like he he works too much and i think it drains yeah. him too much so i think he'll probably lose but all right mm -hmm. uh elliot i want to thank you again for coming on the show it was Thanks, four man. or five years since you last were on and you've done a lot 
And uh, I just thanks for taking the time. Cool. Thanks, man. Always good talking to you. A quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today.